Welcome to the Ivy Podcast. We're just two aunties sharing our experience through the lens of one Blackfoot woman and one Anishinaabe woman. And we are Indigenous Vision, an educational nonprofit based in Montana and Arizona. We are 100% Indigenous led, and this is our podcast. Check us out at indigenousvision.org to learn more about our work, make a donation, or play back any of our radio shows and this episode. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another Ivy podcast. I'm Suta. I'm Melissa. Hello. Hey, Melissa. So um, yesterday you texted me and you were going to a sushi making class. And I um, I really want to know how to make I was wondering if you could give me a Zoom demo after you learned. Yeah, I um, I've been really trying to get involved in communities or groups of people that I don't know, I'll have the same interests of me. And that happens to be plant-based food here in Las Vegas. And the, the, I don't want to say vegan, but yeah, the vegan community is really buzzing and it's a side to Vegas that I'd never experienced before. And there's this really amazing Asian restaurant that's run by chef Kenny. It's called chef Kenny's vegan Asian cuisine. And he just opened up a dim sum restaurant, which is like unheard of for plant-based and there's this new culinary school slash eatery that you can actually go in and eat at that has been hosting local chefs to give cooking lessons to regular people like me who want to learn. So Chef Kenny, who is this incredibly talented, super amazingly creative plant-based Asian chef, taught a course yesterday on how to make sushi because I love sushi so much. It's been one of my favorite foods since the very first time I tried it. And it's really intimidating to make, or at least I thought it was intimidating, but after the course, it's actually really easy. Suta, you just need a little bamboo, a little roller, sushi rice, which is super easy to make. And then you can literally get as creative as you want and put anything that you want inside of it. The rolling part is you just have to keep practicing. It's not hard. It's just, it's, it seems awkward because we don't do it. I mean, you can roll a burrito, right? But rolling up a sushi roll is a little bit different because it's like delicate. It's seaweed paper. It's rice. You got stuff inside of it. You don't want it to rip or explode, but it's actually quite easy. And um, I'm looking forward to like buying ingredients and making it at home instead of going out and spending like $60 on sushi. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or lim- limiting your sushi intake to dollar sushi day. <laughs> exactly. And like, I don't want to just keep eating avocado and cucumber sushi because I'm plant-based. Like I want like to learn how to actually make like really intricate sushi that's plant-based. So he showed us like techniques on how to put stuff on top, what kind of sauces to mix, to make like a, a nice drizzle um, textures. There was like this eggplant method that he did where you slice eggplant super thin, then you fry it, let it cool. And it kind of droops over top of sushi and it creates almost like a tuna flavor and texture. Wow. That's so amazing. All vegetables. That's so amazing. It's interesting. You don't want to be called vegan. Why not? Oh my goodness. Should I open that bag of? Yeah, let's get, (laughs) let's go there because I've been wanting to go there, especially with Thanksgiving um, happening recently. The vegan community, from what I've gathered over my six plus years now in it, is that it's kind of anti-Indigenous. They're really against any form of killing of an animal to eat, any form of it. There are some vegans who are so militant 
that you just can't even try and break down the paradigm that they're stuck in. Like then they just won't hear it. And I I've gotten into it a few months back in over people on uh, YouTube because there's this one cool vegan chick that I follow on YouTube because she has great recipes. She's also Asian inspired. Asian food is like my favorite, specifically Korean and Vietnamese. So I follow a lot of Asian vegan people to learn their recipes or try and get ideas. But she was doing a Q&A one time on her YouTube channel and she was going on. She wanted some unpopular, unpopular opinions about veganism and the indigenous thing came up. And it started this whole war of a push pull. There was a few vegans who were like, you know what? I get it. It's their ancestral ways to hunt. And it's done in an honorable way. They wear the hides. They use up all of the animal. It's not like they're killing, you know, hundreds of thousands at a time. It's like one here and there for their family. And some people were just like, no, Native Americans don't get a pass to eat meat just because their ancestors did. And it was just like this huge fight. And I just got so turned off by the whole thing. And I'm like, you know what? Maybe I'm not really a vegan anymore because of the way I feel about this. Like I still am cool with wearing moccasins and fur in colder climates. And I'm okay with my cousins hunting in the North during hunting season and sharing Mm -hmm. the meat with my family. Like I have absolutely no problem with that. And I could see how that could be perceived as not vegan. Wow, Melissa, I think you like really hit on something amazing there. And I think that all of these communities, these trendy communities, sustainability communities, vegan communities are all stuck on this mentality that it has to be one certain way everywhere. And that's not realistic and that's not sustainable. If you live in the North, the far north, which means any Canadian city past the 45th parallel or or U.S. city past this 45th parallel, you should wear things from that area. You should eat things from that area. You are a part of that area and you shouldn't remove yourself from that. So if you're living in Missoula, Montana and you're a vegan and you only eat avocados and bananas, like, dude, move to Ecuador. (laughs) right like I'm right next to California like I get a lot even in Arizona like I was eating the produce that was like surrounding areas citrus was through the roof you know Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but I think the true sustainability the true earth-friendly thing is to use what's in your local environment right there and you brought up a memory I learned really early on in my environmental studies education of PETA being really against this Northwest Territories Inuit village. I might be wrong on that. It's been over 20 years, people. <laughs> um, this is a, I, I want to say it's, it's not Northwest Territories. It's far up in like Northern Nunavik. Quebec. Yeah, Nunavik area where there are caribou. There is a caribou herd that passes by once a year, uh, once a season, and this village will cull the herd down and PETA threw a big fit over it because there were, like you said, hundreds, about a hundred caribou lying in this pit, which made it look like a mass grave, but the pit was down in the permafrost underneath the freeze layer. And so these deer would stay, or these caribou would stay frozen year round and they use it like a refrigerator. And that population's impact on that one caribou herd was just that. It wasn't constant taking and culling throughout the year 
to um, disrupt her dynamics in any uh, destructive way. And that's that's what it is, too. I think they don't um, they also live in a different paradigm, like a really cool example that I'm using lately is that our elders, Blackfoot elders recently wanted to remind us that the paradigm that we live in is different as Indigenous people, where Napiguans, white man saw warfare and territorial adherence, where we're on the territory of Salish, Blackfoot, you know, Northern Cheyenne today. Um, it's not like who owned the land. It was who was obligated and has relationships with that land. And so then we went to warfare out of compassion and responsibility and obligations of our responsibilities towards that being. And so Xistucky, the beaver, we have a special relationship with the beaver and we have an area where we take care of this one beaver nation and, and it helps form our ecosystems and our habitats and and bring all that uh, value increase the value we see which means you know more game but I digress like the I think it's different paradigms of thinking and I think true sustainability and true friendly living would be utilizing what you have where you're at and if you don't have that then then move to someplace that fits your values because it's completely unsustainable to be like I'm gonna live in somewhere Quebec (laughs) and not eat meat or not wear leather or fur and indigenous people lived where they were and how they did because that's how you're supposed to live there that's the easiest way the most efficient way to live in an area and and live and thrive yes it's definitely geographical and they just don't understand that these vegans that I've gone head to head with in like comment sections and on pages that are about, you know, social justice and environmental awareness. They, they just get really hung up on the fact that everything's just torturing animals and and it's cruelty. But at the same time, they don't really understand that they're privileged that they're exercising to even have access to all of these products like produce and fake meats is in fact a privilege. And that's something that I'm also pointing out to people too, is when they, I'm like being a vegan or plant-based is an extreme privilege. You think that anybody can just survive on eating rice and beans, especially when I tried to break down the North and their food costs and everything involved to ship food up to the North. A lot of times they're just like, well, why can't they just like get beans up in the North? And I'm again, like they just cannot understand the challenges. Mm-hmm. There's no magic mm-hmm. roads that go up into these communities. It's all got to be flown in. It comes in cargo ships. Like it's extremely difficult. And I've been to the North and I've seen the food prices. I mean, you're not going to buy a head of lettuce for like $25 when you can buy something else or go hunting. Like you just, mm-hmm. that, that whole way of thinking is just, it just cannot penetrate their brains. And so for that reason, I I cannot label myself a vegan anymore. So I just say I'm plant-based or a hardcore vegetarian. Those are the two terms Mm. that I use. Mm. Yeah. And I have a little problem with like intensive industrial agriculture, like huge monocroppings that are uh, require extreme amounts of pesticide. And as a watershed manager, industrial level agricultural practices are ruining our animals, our biodiversity, our water quality, our health. Um, like you have to get foods that are confirmed, uh, free of glyphosate, which is a ingredient in Roundup, which is (laughs) 
known to cause cancer and and they use that on our food and it's in our bread like it's because wheat uh, is one of the crops that really need especially as a Monsanto crop but industrial agriculture is not more friendly than killing one single animal especially from a herd that has lost its natural predators because as people not me, <laughs> but people were scared of wolves and bears and predators. And so they killed all of the wolves and they killed all of these predators. And we have a place, I feel, in the, the food web. We have a place. And there are animals, like even deer, are known to eat the guts of other deer. Like there are certain things, and I feel like it's probably this, you know, maybe an unconscious drive to get some kind of nutrient or protein or something beneficial to our, our body. But, you know, there's a natural balance in life. And I feel like we need to honor that as well. And sustainability isn't like, I'm not going to eat meat. I'm only going to eat these superfoods that come from different continents, super like foods that plant-based foods that need to be shipped in over a hundred miles. Like I'm going to eat what I can grow in my garden and what I could trade with my friends and what grows locally or the closest around here. Like I try to get my produce from Washington because it Mm -hmm. has the shortest distance from to us instead of California or Mexico. And yeah, produce prices in Canada are just crazy and they're really crazy. It's wilted already. and Yeah, I grew up on meat and potatoes because that was what was really around. Potatoes and onions and all those like root vegetables. There was just so plentiful. So maybe that's why I just love potatoes so much. Mm -hmm. But I gave up on meat years ago because when I came to America, I just saw the insane and the excessive amount of factory farming that was going on and just how it was pumping out of machines into people's drive-throughs and it just really disgusted me. Mm-hmm. So that's why I chose not to. I don't know if I'd I don't know if I can go back to eating meat if I go back up north. I don't know what it's going to be like. I'll just have to wait and see when I get up there. But I'm definitely not not open to it mm. because I enjoyed eating game that my cousins would hunt. It was delicious. Mm-hmm. And it yeah, it nourished my body. Right. We're working on a project right now, me, Indigenous Vision, (laughs) uh, that's actually focused around climate change or impacts and food sovereignty and our local diet. And a lot of times right now, I feel like we're putting a lot of funding and efforts into food sovereignty, tribal food sovereignty. And I was thinking a couple of weeks ago, I'm like, you know what, having, having a garden for this Blackfoot woman is not food sovereignty. It's adopting a colonial practice that is requiring me to get seeds <laughs> from other places and then forcing something that's not acclimated or able to grow here to grow here. And then who knows, like, I really should just be on my, like, I have a genetic evolutionary diet and that's the one that I've had the most success with over my lifetime of trying to get healthy and get my diet in order is going back to what my ancestors ate. And that spurred this study of, uh, which has, um, we've been preliminarily awarded an EPA environmental justice grant to 
take some working dogs out and look for mink and otter scat that we'll take to the lab and have analysis for uh, COVID-19, pharmaceuticals, flame retardants, and heavy metals, and chronic wasting disease. And eventually, we'll be able to issue notices to my community of where it's okay to go pick and harvest and hunt because a lot of these elements, heavy metals and chronic wasting disease have a viable lifetime in the soil and water and can be taken up by plants in the riparian areas surrounding the streams and wetlands. And so thinking about that, thinking, okay, if I go pick like a lot of mint this summer and I get to have my mint cup of tea every day throughout the winter, I'm, st- I'm dosing myself with whatever is in the soil and water, whether that's biological things like uh, cryptosporidium or giardia or like all of the chronic wasting disease and bursalosis. <laughs> chronic wasting disease is a prion. It's a, it's a malfolding prion that is being transmitted among different cervid species, elk, moose, deer, and now caribou, white-tailed deer. Wherever they leave their mucous membranes or pee or die and decompose in that area, that prion remains viable in the soil and water for a minimum of two years. And so anything that grows, um, any animal that comes by and eats that, sniffs it, is then exposed to chronic wasting disease, and that's how it's spreading. This has pretty major impacts for my community who tends to Uh, We're trying to revitalize these practices, our land-based practices. We're trying to revitalize our food harvesting, our root harvesting animals that we have a relationship with deer and bison. There's a part of lots of groups that are trying to return bison to the prairies and all of the biodiversity that that creates. But um, yes, this project is, is looking at, looking at our, our soil and water and and looking at how it's impacting the health of everything in that ecosystem, specifically the deer and service species, and then our chance and risk of uh, negative health impacts from exposing ourselves to this for too long. So it's good to know where these things are. And it's good to know where to pick and it where is. clean water is at. And- Definitely. And I do see a, a big contrast between Canada and the U.S. And I even tasted the difference when I moved down here when it came to meats. Mm, yeah, there's just less uh, like industrial mm-hmm. uh, manufacturing of it. There's less, you know, native people have a thing and it goes in back into my water mole- molecular water research of how energy can transform and structure molecules. This special relationship that indigenous people have with the animals that we harvest and, and how we honor them during the hunt and after the hunt. And even some of the things I found from like a, a, a secondhand store where I see a mink uh, throw or shawl that I know was probably, if it's an old retro item, it was probably from trapping periods where a lot of regions had their areas just overexploited with trapping and all of the mink and otter and beaver disappeared and blackfoot for us we were we have a special relationship with Xistaki and so we wouldn't let very many trappers come in and trap our our beaver because we we didn't think that those traps honored them it's just a really brutal unforgiving unhonorable way to to go out right and a lot of these animals chew off their own paws to get out of there and 
and then who have have been maimed the indigenous relationship to animals and how we kill them structures that animal and i feel like an animal that has been taken honorably with protocol like a like our bison when my uncle who owns a bison herd called me and my sister in to do praise haulers for when they harvested the the buffalo they said your praise hauler should be the last thing that they hear and that meant a lot to me because it made me think of the energy that i was giving them and what they were leaving this reality with and moving mm-hmm. on to and are they game no that kind of makes me upset as a indigenous water land in, like environmental manager like it it kind of makes me upset to call these beings game because they're more than that and they're not pets either <laughs> they're like fully developed beings with an emotional intelligence and all of this and so they do need to have a special relationship when they're in industrial farms they're not honored they're fearful they're treated as objects and i think they feel it and that impacts the taste of the the meat yes. and, and there's a lot of times there's like i call it junk junk meat um which is fast food or like uh, you know, just regular old hamburger or chicken breasts. And like, when you open them, they stink. <laughs> they yeah. Smell bad. And I feel like that, that that's like my first sign that that animal died with a chemical imbalance that was in a state of fear. And for my thyroid, I specifically, I try to only eat things that are going to add something positive in some way or another, right. Nutritionally mm-hmm. and spiritually, And it's important that my, you know, people joke about it now, like only eat happy chickens, only eat happy eggs. And, and then maybe don't eat them at all if you're not sure, but it's the page I'm on right now. But (laughs) I think a lot of people don't understand too, that the animals in those factories are actually ill and not well. I'll never forget working at a taco shop in Phoenix and seeing my boss just cutting tumors out of this big slab of pork and then just making tacos with it. And I remember thinking, oh my goodness, I I wonder how many other places this is happening at where these animals that suffered their entire lives developed illnesses and then were still just treated as grade A quality meat by some certification and then sent out into the world and the public. And then you just hack off the tumors and serve it, Mm. which is really a really big issue, I think. And think of the times where somebody is lazy and they just threw all the tumors into the meat grinder. And oh, goodness. Yeah. yeah. Gross. Yeah. I think there's, it's a big, you know, some people might think it's foo-foo, but whatever. I don't care. I hold I would my rather... water <laughs> to my mouth and say, I love you. I'd rather watch my aunt, you know, skin a deer and, and hack it up than get something that's like wrapped in plastic on a styrofoam thing and like no idea where it really came from. Mm. I mean, have you ever, you ever driven by a meat plant? Mm-hmm. The oh, smell? Yeah. Yeah. A lot of times the smell um, is always there. It's so gross. And what made a big difference to me in, in cutting out like industrial meat products is the flight from Phoenix to Brooklyn. Uh, I've done that a few times, East Coast flights from the Southwest to the East. And Mm -hmm. there's a spot right over the the Midwest in our farming belt where 
there's an industrial farm and they have lakes full of blood and these red lakes from these slaughter factories. And I just, I couldn't, it's too much. And I come from a nation of people that have kill sites and buffalo jumps. <laughs> and, um, you know, people say, well, what about the waste there at the bottom? Like the buffalo bones are 20 feet deep in this area. That's a lot of waste. And I'm like, well, why would we carry back the whole buffalo to a temporary seasonal camp when we know exactly where it's at? Like that's our store there at the bottom of the cliff. <laughs> we, mm-hmm. we will go back and get our needles. We'll go back and get our spoons and or whatever we need from where we know it's at instead of having to drag this around like a material item, right? Yeah. Yeah. See, this paradigm that we're speaking in just cannot be comprehended by some of the vegan people that I've come to know mm-hmm. over the years and the, being a part of this community. So I'm really careful now on who I talk to and hang out with. But like I said, the sushi class was okay. Oh, that's so fun. I saw sushi rice um, when I was grocery shopping yesterday and I was like, oh, I should pick that up. And then I thought, well, it's probably going to be a little investment that I, that I'd have to get the bamboo roller. I've seen those before. And then the papers, I was thinking about the seaweed wraps. Do you have to like put them in a liquid to make them soft? And nope. There, there's like, the, it's like a tough type of seaweed paper that is rollable compared to the little snack ones that you always see me eating. So there's that. And I like that the school that was teaching this class is already pretty diverse. I think today they're doing tamales with um, a Latina woman who has a pop-up here in town and she has like a great food truck. I, I followed it. She was at the indigenous people's day. I'm um, gathering at the park and that's where I learned about her. So she's teaching a class on tamales and this is going to be controversial, but I'm not crazy about tamales. <laughs> so I didn't sign up for that one, but um, I would definitely have gone if she was teaching how to make like the jackfruit meat that kind of imitates her, her style of seasoning. Mm-hmm. Cause there is just something about <laughs> salsas and stuff like that from you know south america that just is just unbelievably delicious and i no matter how many times i try and make it i just can't get it the way they get it same thing with them a lot of these asian dishes that i try to create so it's really cool to have class or a school that's really diverse like that you know it's not just these tofu i don't know sandwiches or burgers it's like they're legitimately trying to diversify and bring out different cultures because that's what I've noticed too. There's like so many cultures who are plant-based and even in my like fighting back and forth with the militant vegans, there was a couple of like other indigenous people popping up and they're saying the same thing that I was. It's like, Hey, we're not trying to like destroy all the animals. We're taking what we need and then moving on. Like, it's just the way it's the way it goes. And for, for people to be so tunnel visioned of just focusing on animals and saying that they care about the environment while excluding everything else, like the actual environment is really black and white. I mean, do they even know that there's people out on the front lines fighting for actual land right now? Oh, it's just insane. And like the pipeline people, like Mm -hmm. I follow so many people who are actually out there physically putting themselves in danger, especially now that it's cold, especially in the North, the, the battles rage on and you can, you know, eat as much 
produce as you want, but are you, what are you really doing to help the environment or yeah. the world that you're like flag shipping or whatever? A really good example of that is what happened to the elk herds in Yellowstone when they um, killed all the, the wolves and then reintroduced the wolves. What happened is the elk got lazy. <laughs> <laughs> the elk stopped being scared. The elk started going into areas that they never usually went in and then decimated the soil or the water, the stream bank, just like cows that have like unhindered access, right? Just they just ruin the, the soil and the water and <laughs> like buffet madness. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. When they reintroduced wolves, that it forced the elk to to adopt their previous behaviors and habits, which made them move back into a certain region within the ecosystem and stay out of other areas where they were overexposed or more likely to meet a wolf and a predator. And, and then the herds got sick um, mm. because what do we do? We manage them like game. And so we eliminate the predators and then we don't effectively take up the mode of predators uh, in how herds are herd populations are maintained and how wolves and predators tend to pick off old and sick or really really young and then indigenous people also have protocols too on who to take at what time of year. Like we're not taking mothering calves, right? Uh, we're taking the bull bison this time. We're taking only the bulls um, and then leaving the, the calves and cows. I'm talking about elk here <laughs> uh, to, to um, raise up that new generation, right? Exactly. And, and so um, we're, we just don't go out there and shoot anything and everything that's, we don't treat them like game. They, they are a living being with a purpose and a place in this ecosystem and that there, there's balance required. And no, there is absolutely no place in the world where you can actually run away from the blood and then say, I don't want to cause any pain because I think, you know, vegan diets can be. Uh, especially those um, trendy, trendy, yeah, trendy vegan diets. They're they're hard on the ecosystem. They're hard. On, they have a huge carbon footprint, and it's completely unrealistic and unsustainable. And so, I think if you're really hardcore about any particular diet, then you need to move to an area that really supports that. Yeah, I do see all these trendy vegans just exploiting the hell out of superfoods, like you were mentioning earlier there's that whole cacao movement as well with ceremonial uh spiritual the new age people abusing that the acai people i mean how far away is that stuff to get mm. it up here so that you can have your instagram worthy acai bowl in the morning mm. right mm. like it's it's really performative at this point and I've just been seeing through all of it. You know, I was really kind of like gung-ho about like veganism in the beginning, but then I'm just like, ew, everybody here is really toxic actually. Mm. So I've I've gone to plant-based vegetarian. That's, yeah. I can Because I have the privilege, easier. Yeah, you know? And I admit it's a privilege and a lot of people don't want to hear that. It is an absolute privilege to pick what kind of, foods you want to eat and put into your body like that is a major privilege mm -hmm. yeah. and I'm aware oh I'm aware of that I grew up on commodities which are federal government 
food rations. Wow. For the poor. I've never experienced it. I can't imagine. (laughs) I think our, like, we got Christmas hampers. Mm -hmm. So we get a box delivered at Christmas time with a bunch of stuff and be like, oh my God. But again, it's like super unhealthy stuff. Yeah. Talk about industrial farming. Like they're big silver cans with a black print of the animal on it. So the beef has a cow on it. The chicken has a chicken on it. (laughs) And, um, you know, my mom used to try to like fix these up in all different kinds of ways that were yummy sweet and sour chicken is one of my favorites, but I, you know, I stopped eating it. I felt like it contributed to my health problems. And, and I think, you know, I think our last episode was on self-care and, and that's where I'm really at is, is to eliminate this unnecessary stress that I'm holding onto, or my body is holding onto, I have to eliminate adding more stress to my body. And so that's where I stopped eating like just regular beef or chicken, um, things that I knew weren't taken in a way that I agreed with or didn't align with my values. So right now um, I have a little bit of, I'm running out. I don't have very much uh, meat. I'm not a hunter. I'm, I'm in a society that I'm not supposed to hunt and I'm supposed to rely on the hunters in my community to provide me these things in exchange for prayers <laughs> of, of the bundle cool. I'm associated with. Yeah. But But I've been really focusing on making sure that what I put in my body, if I'm not sure of where it came from or how it was harvested, then I try to um, transmit some healthy energy. And I think that's what praying before you eat is all about, is transmitting this gratefulness um, or honoring that life of a plant root an animal and then, and, and thanking it for what it's about to provide my body with and being grateful for this, that small amount of nutrition. And so I've been really conscious about to achieve my stress-free healthy life. I need to be consuming and ingesting things that are also stress-free and you know what I want to be. Nice. That's good to hear, man. Mm -hmm. I wish more people lived in this paradigm. Because when I go outside, I just see a bunch of unhealthy bodies consuming unhealthy bodies. Mm. And it's taken a huge effect on people and our society in general. There's just so much unhealthiness, especially in our communities too. When I've gone up North, I'll never forget like working. I was a radio tech in the North and I would patch the lines together to get the broadcast on the network. And it was all analog, but I would have to stay overnight just to, so that they could broadcast, but they would have these huge like jamborees gatherings in the North and have to be flown out there. And all they would drink was sodas, no waters, because that's all that was available. And I remember thinking, oh my goodness, how did we get to this point mm-hmm. where soda is everywhere and water is hard to get because there was no running water? Yeah. Yeah. And we're more likely to die from diabetes than old age. Yeah. Like I seeing think- a six-year-old girl slam back like three cans of soda in the evening period. I was just like, what is going on here? You know, she had a little swollen belly and everything. And it's normal to her. That's normal. Yeah, I, I definitely, that was one of the things that I eliminated. I'm, I hardly drink juice. I'm not a, I'm not a juicer. I don't, I only drink water, coffee, and tea. Kind of boring, huh? <laughs> but I struggle with my, my processed foods. That's my next addiction. Like I've had so many addictions, Suta, 
the food addiction is the final battle. I feel like I've gotten like to the last level of a video game and like this is huge like food monsters like okay Melissa let's you know fight this out because I really just want to eat like natural foods but I you know the sad diet the standard American diet is just so ingrained in me and like I just love this addicted you know endorphin feeling of eating like indulgent food and milkshakes and ice creams and oh it's just terrible sometimes And again, it's like we just live in this food carnival, especially here in Vegas, where everything is just over the top everywhere you look. It's uh, it's definitely a challenge. So I'm I'm taking the challenge to really try and eat better mm-hmm. with everything in my face. Mm, yeah, me too. <laughs> it's hard. <laughs> like, But uh, the one thing I want to add on before we end this podcast is um, I'll share my stare my story of the berry bush, which I share in culture humility trainings. Yes to um, kind of give it people an idea of what's beyond inclusion of how we think about it right now. So the berry bush is a Nopi story in my nation and Nopi saw these berries and he really, really wanted them and got greedy and was trying to take them, but ended up hurting himself in the process by not realizing that he was going after a juicy reflection instead of the actual berry bush. But that story, shortly paraphrased, um, was on my mind and told to me when my grandma Violet also took me out berry picking as a four-year-old. And this would usually happen when my dad and my grandpa were getting a sweat ready and me and my grandma would go wander in the trees and take our buckets with us. And she said that I had to worry about other things. Like it's not it's not my place to see a big berry bush and take them all. We have to worry about the birds who need them, the bears who need them and the very bush itself. And then on top of that, this is the way we do it. This is the, which, which means this is the way our grandmothers have always done it. And uh, she put a, a blanket down and shook the tree and some ripe berries fell out. And then we spent some time um, picking other berries. And what that did is it, it that technique of harvesting and, and I want to like kind of generalize this over all indigenous harvesting techniques of anything is that the way in which we harvest helps promote productivity the next season. And we also leave some for other things. So it's just not about us and our needs. It's about that, that bigger impact. Right. And I think when we worry about that bigger impact then, and we, we minimize our needs. I, I don't know. I feel like it, it's just a healthier way of being. It's just a healthier, more gentle way of being. It is. It's yeah. It kind of goes. Yeah. I totally get what you're saying. I know that the Wendigo is a reflection of people being excessive and greedy and overdoing any aspect of anything. You kind of create that monster and you're trying to avoid that monster inside by just taking what you need mm. and not overdoing it in any aspect. Mm. Well, here's to living minimally. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> to living uh, with a, the biggest positive ripple with the least amount of waves. How do I say that? Just walk like your feet are kissing the earth. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Even if your banana bread is bland. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to the Indigenous Vision podcast. 
You can find out more about us on our official website, including how to contact us, make a donation, or play back any of our music radio shows or this podcast. Don't forget to share with your friends and write a review if you've got time. We totally appreciate you sharing your time with us.